Welcome along to April's Coffee Break. I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined as usual from the sunny south coast by Mr. James Easton. James, how are you, sir? Oh, good evening, Marcus. I'm all right, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm keeping all right. I've been enjoying the uh, the warm weather. We've been very, very lucky with weather and I've been going out for my daily walk each day. But life has changed so much since we arrived oh, it has. a month ago with this lockdown. And first of all, how are you coping with it? Because, you know, we're, we're stuck indoors most of the time. But you, you've been keeping busy with various things, haven't you? Well, I have, mate. Yeah, I mean, as you know, as, as the listeners know, my, my main job, I, I work for an airline, a major UK airline, um, and I have been furloughed by my um, airline because no one's really flying at the moment for obvious reasons. Um, but myself and my wife, we decided when, when this situation was getting worse, sort of probably around the time we did our last podcast at the end of February, beginning of March, we started inquiring about jobs because we thought, this could get this could get a problem. We didn't know about the furlough scheme then, but um, we've been taken on by Morrison's, and I have to say it's a it's it's, it's a massive change from what I'm used to. Um, I am enjoying it. It's keeping me busy. It's keeping me ticking over. Um, I get a discount card. They're looking after us. People are so respectful to us because we are on the front line. Um, and it's it's just been a been a bit of a whirlwind, really. I mean, I haven't stopped really. I, I I'm never going to take my job for granted again because I tell you what, working in a supermarket, lugging around heavy boxes and cages full of stock, drinks, alcohol. Um, I'm surprised I haven't been sacked by the amount of bottles I've smashed on the floor accidentally. Um, <laughs> today I uh, accidentally. Uh, it was only a twelve quid bottle of whiskey, but even so. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm probably going to have a right six pack by the time I end this. By the amount of looking, <laughs> so is the weight dropping off you then, or what? No, no, no. But I, I'm just keeping steady. To be fair, I haven't put any weight on because I, I'm I've got my watch on. I'm I'm doing over ten thousand steps a day, which obviously is the recommended health. So you might be going for your daily walk. I'm doing my walk around the supermarket, back and forth around the shelves. So to be so honest, when you say I, you're I'm having a right active. six pack, you're not referring to a six pack of lager, are you? Oh, no. I mean, I'm stacking a lot of them on the shelves and uh, maybe a couple of them when I get home at night with my discount. But no, it's um, I, I'm lifting a lot of boxes. Like I have to say my hands in the last couple of weeks have been pretty sore because I think I'm using muscles that I've never really used before. So it's um, it's, it's enjoyable. It's keeping me sane and keeping me busy. Um, so I am enjoying it. Um, it is uh, it is different, but you know it's nice to keep myself out there and help the customers. But you know what's lovely is coming home. I finish at half four, come home, sit in the garden to catch the last bit of sun. Did that this afternoon. Did it yesterday. It's absolutely glorious right now. And typically they're saying this is, could be one of the hottest months on record. And the pub landlords must be killing themselves right now. Well, do you know what? The one certainty we do have about life is that the sun will still continue to rise next year, the year after that, and the year after that. I would say to people, that's, that is a certainty we do have. Make sure you and your family are still around next year, year after that, and the year after that, because there will be other summers, there will be other lovely springs. But if you get yes. this virus, you don't want to be taking any chances whatsoever. And I'm, you know what? I would say, because as you know, I live in a waterfront flat and you know what the views are like from my uh, living room balcony, but I think 90% of people get it and they understand about social distancing. But I do think there is a significant minority who are either ignoring it or are saying it doesn't apply to them. It's like earlier this evening, I took a walk to Morrison's, the Morrison's near me, and um, I have to go up a very slight... Good hill. choice of supermarket, by the way. Oh, it was. There yeah. are others out there. <laughs> yeah, and, and the queues to get in are much, much lower than in Asda, I've noticed, which is why I tend to choose Morrison's. Uh, but I was going up the a hill, and this kid on um, one of those buggy car things was coming down the hill, and the mother was holding on to the kid, and she brushed past me. She brushed past my arm. Now, I turned sideways, so I wasn't head on to her. But again, point one, why was the kid out at all? There was no need for that child to be there. It's not a playground. And point two, 
doesn't she doesn't she think that the rules just don't apply to her for some reason? And another thing I would say is looking out, out of this balcony window, there's either a hell of a lot more people living in, in um, gay or lesbian co communal colonies than I realised, or there's groups of friends meeting up who don't live together thinking it doesn't apply to them. It's one or the other. I mean, to be honest, in, 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 a, in, in a supermarket, I have a couple of times had to say to customers, can you just wait, be patient, I'll move out the way for you. They almost think, despite the fact I'm wearing a green uniform, as you know the colours of Morrison's are, mm. um, they seem to try and barge past me when they could just say, oh, excuse me, do you mind passing me that or do you mind putting that away? And it is frustrating. I do have to remind people and they kind of look at you like you're an idiot. I mean, even on the way home, I've seen some people on the seafront in Worthing. They've been sitting there um, in groups of people. I mean, I... I don't want to put any sort of markers on it, but I think they're the sort of local people that sit on the seafront and get drunk normally, but they're sitting there on the seafront. And one thing that really wound me up um, last week, obviously the 8 PM clap for the NHS, which I think is fantastic and frontline workers every uh, Thursday. Um, I don't know if you saw the video Marcus on Twitter of Westminster bridge in London and the oh, police yeah. were all lined up on the bridge and, I'd say hundreds of people would just stand there clapping, no distance. Why were the police letting them do it? I know it's respectful to the blue lights and the frontline workers, but there's no exception for that. And that's just going to go viral. I think we've got a bit. I know we're not here to be overly serious, but we can't ignore the situation at the moment. So on this occasion, you know, coffee break does reflect the times we live in. And it's right that we talk about this. And what I would say is we are seeing numerous examples of the police either being far too heavy handed or not being firm enough with people. And what we saw on Westminster Bridge was ex an example of the police not being uh, firm enough and just letting them get on with it. And yet we're seeing other examples where people have taken mobile phone footage of the police being far too aggressive with people who are not actually breaking any laws and, are mm. not, uh, and when, when they're out taking their daily walk and people are quoting the laws back at the police saying, no, I am entitled to leave my home for an hour a day and do my exercise here. Um, it's not for you to tell me I can't. And, the police are being far too heavy handed in some instances. So we have a history in this country of policing by consent. But I, 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 the instant you've just given an example of and the instant I've seen on the other end of the extreme, we could be losing this police by consent that we have in this country. And it, it bodes very ill for the future that I think. It does, but I mean, it's just people need to show a bit of respect and it's starting to really frustrate me. But hey, ho, they'll, they'll unfortunately learn the hard way. I mean, the reports today that I think is that the the health minister seems to think it's uh, reached the peak of the illness in the UK, and I find that hard to believe right now. Well, I, don't well, I don't know whether you listened to this week's coronavirus update with myself and Greg Lance Watkins, but the basic point we made there, and people can listen to this in their own time if they want more depth on this subject, but the basic point is that it's not so much that we're looking for a peak. Now, for example, you look at what's happened in Australia, Prime Minister Scott Morrison, uh, his strategy there, his lockdown strategy, he's got the number of daily cases down to a very low level. And in terms of mm. deaths, there, there, are, there are days where daily cases are in the low double figures now in Australia. And there are days when there are no deaths at all. And there are other days where there's just one or two. Now, the problem Scott Morrison has got is that as soon as he eases off the lockdown, there'll very likely be a second wave. And if he starts allowing planes into the country, you can almost guarantee there will be a second wave. And there's a similar situation in New Zealand, where New Zealand is effectively two remote islands, very beautiful islands, but nowhere near anywhere else. Prime Minister Arden in New Zealand has, went, went firm and went hard with a very early firm lockdown. The question is, now that you've got it under control, what do you actually do? Because 
like I say, if you start allowing people to mingle, whether it's in cafes, bars, sporting events, you name it, you're risking a second wave. And if you start allowing people into the country via aeroplanes, again, you're, you're almost certainly going to, well, you are certainly going to bring it back. So another thing we don't know, and this is something, I talked about this on Radio Sputnik last week, and then within 24 hours, it was being mentioned in the government daily press briefing. And later that day, it was announced by the World Health Organization. We do not know whether once you've had this virus once, does it give you three months immunity, six months immunity, 12 months immunity, a lifetime's immunity, or no immunity at all? Or is it like malaria? Now, Greg Lance Watkins, my co-host on Coronavirus Update, he's had malaria for about 40 odd years. And what happens is you recover from the initial um, bout of malaria, if you're lucky enough to recover, and then it rests in your liver and it becomes dormant in your liver and it resurfaces once every few years or whatever. And now Greg still gets bouts of malaria, not anything like as severe as they used to be for him, but he does still get them. And therefore, we know the point being, James, we know so little about how this coronavirus, COVID 19, works. Does it give you lots of immunity, a little bit of a limited period of time of immunity, no immunity at all? Or is it like malaria? And you know what? Um, the, the Oxford researchers are going to start their um, testing for a vaccine tomorrow. Even if they get really lucky on day one tomorrow, that vaccine, because of all the stages it's got to go through, will not be available until the end of this year. And they're probably not going to get that lucky tomorrow. Yeah, no, exactly. But I mean, to, to lighten things up, it obviously is a very serious serious topic but you know we got you've got your 20 minute topic and coronavirus update with greg um what are you doing to have a bit of fun during lockdown is there anything you've been doing or watching or you know yeah. keeping yourself occupied because obviously i know your work's dried up a little bit as many others so what have you been doing to keep busy yeah you're absolutely right james my i mean i work predominantly in sports journalism and uh, like snooker scene magazine i've appeared in every edition of snooker scene since june 2011 and of course, if there's no tournaments to cover, what can you do? Our editor, Clive Everton, who's actually the longest serving magazine editor in the world. Who did he take over that mantle from? No idea. The answer is Hugh Hefner at Playboy. Um, <laughs> Fair we, enough, yeah. This, this is true, right? About four or five years ago now, um, Clive contacted the Guinness Book of Records and he said, I think I'm the longest serving magazine editor in the world. And uh, they said, no, actually, Hugh Hefner at Playboy is ahead of you. Well, when, when Hefner fell off the perch, from, I, the first thing I did, it was in the early hours of the morning, they announced Hugh Hefner had died. There was a news alert on Sky News or something. First thing I did is I emailed Clive and said, congratulations, Clive, you're the world's longest serving magazine editor. And, um, and he, he replied to me, he said, thank you very much, Marcus. Uh, uh, Hugh Hefner had certain advantages with some of the company he had in the office that we just <laughs> don't have here at Snooker Scene. But yeah, no. so... Clive has been 49 years editor of Snooker Scene. He edited another magazine before that, and I think one before that as well. So he's been editing magazines since about 1966, I think I'm right in saying. And Excellent. yeah, this now, this where we are with things, as I say, I've appeared in every edition since June 2011. And this, this coronavirus situation means that this month we're, we're into now, the, the May edition, will be the first time since January 1970 there hasn't been a Snooker Scene magazine published. And that is, that is 
by the way, if anyone listening to this subscribes to it and are worried about your subscription, please don't worry. Your subscription will be rolled over, so you're not going to lose out. We will return when normal life returns. So I've lost that. That's a big part of my income, as you know. What have you been doing to cheer yourself up, though? Oh, I, I've been watching lots of box sets. I've been, you know, I'm a, I've got a few sort of hinterlands, some weird sort of hobbies that people laugh at when I tell them. I, I watch even earlier this scene. I watch old episodes of the Bill. Um, I've got. I'm up to now about the end of 1992 with the bill, um, which, which, which I'm enjoying. I know it's a bit of escapism, but it, well, the reason I like watching old episodes of the bill and particularly the era we're at now is by the time we got to about 1989, 1990, we're getting to the world I can really remember and the, when I was, what the world was like when I was in primary school, what supermarkets looked like, what corner shops looked like, what post offices looked like. And you notice little things on the shelves that you wouldn't see anymore. And... It, it, and little techniques with policing that they wouldn't dare do nowadays, like the episode I watched earlier this evening from December 1992. Um, there was this young lad misbehaving, PC Tony Stamp, one of the long-serving um, people in there, played by Graham Cole. Um, he grabbed hold of this young man, he took him into a lift and didn't exactly beat him up in a lift, but he threw him against the wall and gave him a damn good telling off. Now, nowadays, police wouldn't dare do that in the way he did it. Because um, you just never know, could the, could the young man have been recording the whole thing on his mobile phone? You just never know. He wouldn't dare risk it. But, you know, you go into things like shops, like they, they call in a corner shop or something's happened in a supermarket. And you notice things on the shelves, whether it's Look In magazine or Shoot magazine or Match magazine or cigarettes on open display. Um, all things that you just wouldn't see nowadays. Um, and it, it's, it's funny just, you say about those cigarettes because you know obviously I used to be a smoker and you know I haven't smoked since I've been off display but you know it completely doesn't cross your mind but yeah you're right they just don't display them anymore and it's e-cigarettes if they have anything at all you know it is weird to think that you know they don't even sell packs of 10 and you know when I used to come out when we were a bit younger the nights out in Cardiff I'd sometimes go and get a pack of 10 or you'd get a pack of 10 that would do you the night and it was mm. quite good in that respect mm. but, but times have changed massively I mean now they have to be behind closed doors and you've got uh, the price. You have to even ask for the price list at the front. Yeah. Like, even, even at my normal job, we have to, we can't display the price in the onboard shopping magazine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a totally different culture. And the other thing is you, you see them going into pubs and uh, they say, oh, I can have a pint of whatever. And it's about one pound 10. And I'm thinking, yeah. what, what, you know, it's, 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 an, it's an incredibly, it's a world I remember very well. <laughs> But it's a I guess the closest we can get to that is Weatherspoons, because there are often quite a lot of real ales that are under the two quid mark. I think the cheapest might be one ninety nine, but I still get a bit of a buzz when I pay one ninety nine for a pint. I think before we went to the Swansea away match in in January, didn't we have? Wasn't there a beer on offer or an ale on offer one ninety nine a there pint? Was. I'm pretty sure there was. There, there was. I, I would say it was, um, what was it, Glamorgan Brewery or something like that? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it, God. It was, Mate, that, doesn't that seem weird? Just on this, Was it the 3rd of January? 2nd. 2nd second, uh, second, second of January. Obviously, I've been to the Bogner Worthing game on the 1st where we won 3 0. Well, apparently we didn't anymore because the season's been expunged, but that's another subject we'll get on to. Um, and then we drove up and, you know, I know coronavirus was slightly in the news, but it wasn't really much in the news. They're still talking about Brexit and obviously leaving the EU at the end of January. Um, and I just think it's weird how that was only four months ago, just sort of four, just over four and a bit months ago mm. that I was with you and everything seemed normal. I came for one night. We had a good old catch up. Mm. Obviously, we were very disappointed at Pillars that day. But, you know, no, we didn't go to the, Pillars that oh, day. No, we didn't go that day. It was before no. that, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it just feels weird how that wasn't that much time ago, but life seemed normal. And look at it now. You look at it now and, you know, you can't 
go to a cinema, you can't go to the gym, you can't go to a shopping centre, you can go to some and go to Boots, I think, or something, that's the limit they've got. You can't go out for a meal, you have to get a takeout. I mean, as you know, I've delivered pizzas and, you know, they're quite busy. I think that's sometimes, you know, Chinese takeouts, they're quite quite a thing to have now rather than go out for a meal but you know what it's so weird and you know I, everyone seems to be just staying at home and watching some fantastic things on tv i mean one thing i'm sure you've read about in the news that i really like is a program called tiger king have you heard about it i've heard about it i haven't actually watched it yet you need to watch it because as you know i love america i love going on holiday this is weird it just shows it's really messed up these I won't give it away, but anyone that has watched it, Carol Baskin. She's in prison now, isn't she? No, Joe Exotic's in prison. Who's ah. uh, who is a? Uh, but mate, it is so weird, but it's addictively weird. You will mm. really, really enjoy it. Um, and that was a great one. There's one that me and Vicky have started watching now called Pen Fifteen. It's a comedy based in the year two thousand. Mm. Uh, if you if you write down Pen Fifteen, I'm not going to repeat it, but you probably know what I mean. Yes, get, I'm with you. Know you. Yeah, I'm there. Yeah, I'm there. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if that's a deliberate thing, but it's called Pen Fifteen. The way it's written on screen, that's what I think. Anyway, um, very good. Very going back to the two thousands, and yeah, you got these retro things like the girls are playing with Sylvanian families in there, playing with uh, My Little Pony and uh, stuff like that, and it's brilliant to see. Um, that's really funny and quite addictive. You, you mentioned Pen15. There was an email circular doing the rounds about 12, 13 years ago. And, they, and the email was, all these are genuine websites. And now some yeah. of them have gone offline in the years since. But for example, penisland.com. Yeah, I remember Pen Island. It was your favorite website, wasn't it? Penisland.com was a real website where you could um, buy a It was your favorite, out. I thought. Now, it, was your home, it was your homepage, wasn't it? Uh, no, definitely not. Um, another, <laughs> another one was, um, you know, if you wanted to find out a celebrity's agent or, or um, any, anything like that, was um, who represents.com. Yeah. Yeah. Are you with me? You got that one? I'm trying to think. It's like Geo, remember how to build the website? It was uh, GeoCities. Do you remember GeoCities? We used to build a website with them. Yeah, yeah, but we're on about rude website names now. We're on about rude web. So you, you had WhoRepresents.com. Marcus, you've got the whole saved in your bookmark. I know what your life, you grot bag. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, what was it now? There was one. Um, there's a, there was a, a street in America, an ordinary street um, called Mole Station, and it, um, it had a nursery, MoleStationNursery.com. Oh, God. Yeah, that I was just, a real website. Got, I've, yeah, God, I've just got that. Yeah. Awful. And there were a I'm load trying, of them. There were a load of them. I, I, I'm trying to think of any. Um, I remember Penn Island. Was that the one where they swung? Are oh, you spin me right? No, meatspin.com. Do you remember that? No, I don't. I don't. Meatspin.com. Just think about it. And it had uh, the song, you spin my head round, baby, right round, like a little baby. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, but, yeah, have a, have a watch of that. And you know what I watched on last week? And I thought it was a fantastic memory of talking, kind of talking along the retro vibes of the year 2000, 2001, was Quiz. Um, on ITV ah, about um, no, Charles Ingram. I need to watch now, this. It, it's very, very good. And uh, I can't remember the actor's name, but he did a very good job of playing Michael Chris Sheen. Tarrant. Michael Sheen, that was it. He played a very good role of Chris Tarrant. He's a, <laughs> welcome along. You know, it's one of those. He uh, is a brilliant character actor. And he has, yeah. played, he has played so many celebrities in films. Um, I, I can recommend all his films to you. Like last Saturday night on BBC One in what would normally have been the match of the day slot. We had um, Michael Sheen starred as Brian Clough in The Damned United. 
where he played Brian Clough. Um, oh, I think I've seen that film. Yeah, very good film. It's about his 44 days at Leeds United, um, intercepted with his days at Derby County. The story moves back and forth, back and forth. Um, and th- those 44 days, I mean, it, I, I'm fascinated by football of that period anyway and the stuff that went yeah, on. Yeah. But it, it, it's, it was just pure coincidence that the BBC scheduled it at the same week that um, Norman Hunter, one of the Leeds defenders of that era, died part of the, one of the boys of 1966 as well. But that, that team of Leeds players, uh, you had Johnny Giles, Norman Hunter, Billy Bremner, Jack Charlton, Terry Yorath, um, and, and Eddie Gray. This was a team yeah. of seriously rough individuals who were solidly loyal to Don Revy. And Brian Clough turns up on day one and he says, he gets everyone together and he said, and he, he hated Don Revy. He absolutely despised Don Revy. Don Revy. Was he Don Revy's replacement? Yes, he was. This was the problem. Don Revy took the England job. Yeah, Brian, yeah. Brian, yeah. Cluff, Cluffy gets the job. He turns up on day one, gets all the players together, and he says, right, you might be league champions, but as far as I'm concerned, you can take all your trophies, all your medals, all your pots and all your pans, you can throw them into what the biggest effing dustbin you can find, because as far as I'm concerned, you've won nothing. You've won everything by cheating. And that was his opening gambit, and that, that actually happened in real life. Mm. And he seriously rubbed them up the wrong way. And what a way days, to win the dressing room over. Well, it, it just did not work. And 44 days, he was gone. Um, We're talking about um, the Leeds United job and Don Revy. I don't know if you saw it. It was on ITV quite late this week. I know you're a bit of a night owl. It was called Get Shirty or Getting Shirty. It was a history about Admiral, you know, the kit manufacturer. Do you remember yeah, Admiral? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're still around at a loose time. I think actually Sainsbury's have got, uh, I was looking at, they've got a, a, a brand agreement with Admiral and they can sell their stuff in there. But mm. did you know, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this, because I certainly wasn't, that Admiral were the creators of the replica shirt. And I never knew that until watching this program. It was mm. Don Revy um, and Leeds United. He was approached because they saw Leeds training somewhere and approached him and he created Leeds' first replica shirt. Because back in those days, People are probably your parents, my parents' age. If they supported a football club, say it was Chelsea or Charlton or Cardiff, they'd get a blue shirt or a red shirt and they'd be able to buy the logo and the mum would sew it on the badge. But Admiral were the first people to actually create a replica kit. And because Don Revy went to from Leeds to England, he actually ended up, te- they ended up having that contact in England. They became the first England kit manufacturer. And I, I, if you haven't, it will be on ITV Player, but it is fascinating to see the rise and then the quite dramatic fall when bigger companies like Adidas and Reebok and Nike and Umbro all got in there and basically Admiral fell to the crippling death I, really. I, was aware, I, I was aware that Admiral made the Leeds United shirts of that era because I've seen enough archive footage because now and again I'll go on YouTube or I'll look at the, the replays on BT Sport because they yeah. show a lot of archive football just, just how rough that Leeds team was the tackles they're putting in you, you would not get away with it even now. And in those days, even if, bear in mind, nowhere near every match was televised. But even if the cameras were there, they were only, on, they were only three or four cameras on you. And they were, they, without close-ups, they were punching people in the stomach. They were studs up, sliding, crunching into you. They were just yeah. going for you. Now, Michael Parkinson tells a good story. Going back about five years before the Brian Cluffy era at Leeds, about 1966, 67, Michael Parkinson was good friends with George Best, and it was a lifelong friendship. And uh, Michael Parkinson at that time was a Granada journalist. Um, and he, was, um, he had a lot of access to the, Busby, the Matt Busby Manchester United team. And he was allowed in the dressing rooms after matches and so forth. And um, George Best, obviously, he effectively peaked by the time he was 24, but he was an out-and-out 
very attacking striker. He could run around defenders, you name it. They faced Don Revy's leads that day. And obviously those, that solid wall of defenders was targeting George Best in a major way. And Michael Parkinson went into the dressing room afterwards and he saw George Best taking his shirt off, getting ready to go in the shower. George Best was covered top to toe in bruises. They really went for him in a way that would be really? so, totally unacceptable now. Now, Johnny Giles, who is, must be 79, 80 now, he's still one of the best pundits in the world. He was with RTE in the Republic of Ireland until quite recently. They booted him off. He now works for Off the Ball. He's also got a column in one of the uh, Irish newspapers. Johnny Giles is actually a gentleman and a very nice man. And people say, oh, he was rough, that Johnny Giles, who's part of that Leeds team. Johnny Giles started at Manchester United. And he said, um, what happened was he was a short bloke. Well, he still is quite a short bloke. And there was this absolutely ruthless bastard at Manchester United, a real tough defender who's dead now, long dead, actually, a guy called Bill Folks. And he was one of the survivors of the Munich disaster in 1958. Now, Bill Folks was really rough and ruthless and everything else. And Johnny Giles knew on day one as a young man, he thought, I'm going to have to stand up to this bloke otherwise. Because he, Bill Folks took great pleasure out of bullying younger players and youth team players in training sessions. Their training, their training pitch at Manchester United in those days was full of bits of broken glass and bits of railway equipment and stuff like that. And Bill, he knew Bill Folks was a bully. His reputation went before him. Johnny Giles, a little short bloke, went up to Bill Folks and punched him really hard straight away on day one. And Bill Folks said... If you ever do that to me again, you're not standing up. What did Johnny Giles do? He punched him again, straight away. <laughs> and Johnny Giles said, I never wanted to be that rough person, but working with Bill Folks at Manchester United as a young player, I had to be. And then he transferred to Don Revy's Leeds. And, well, he was surrounded by rough players there. So it was a fascinating era. Going back to Michael Sheen, so he played Brian Clough in the Damned United. He played the man I always call Anthony Blair. I refuse to call him Tony Blair. He played Anthony Blair in the film, um, what was it now? It was about the period after Diana's death and the way Blair handled that. Um, he played David Frost in Frost Nixon. Have you seen that? No, I haven't, no. Oh, that's a very good film. It's about when um, David Frost and John Burt, who went on to become Director General of the BBC, got the exclusive interview with President Nixon after he was forced to resign over the Watergate scandal. Michael Sheen plays David Frost absolutely brilliantly in that as well. So he, and now he's succeeded again in playing um, Chris Tarrant in this. So he is a yeah. very, very strong character actor. Um, well, give that, give that Admiral programme a watch if you haven't done it, because you'll, you'll be amazed at a little bit of history. And I know you like a little bit of retro history, mm. um, and especially in terms of sport and football, because I know you're a sport journalist. But I mean... One thing that I quite enjoyed today when I was at work in Morrison's, um, one of my colleagues is a 17-year-old guy called Nathan, really really decent guy, and uh, he supports Brighton and goes to a lot of the away matches, as a lot of people do from down here. Um, and I was showing him some of the Sky Sports Super Saturday, so, sorry, Super Sunday intros from 1992. And <laughs> oh, I know we, what you're we, this. we were laughing because one of them is a bit like softcore porn. Um, with a load of men in towels in a changing room and <laughs> the door shuts and we were both giggling because I to be honest forgot about it and then I showed him and we we're proper funny and like you know I always remember that here we, here we go, go here we go here we go here we go here we go this is it that was how it went Ford Super Sunday in association with Ford like yeah I mean it was brilliant and that that just what made me laugh mate because can you imagine, like, you've got all the, like, graphic, like, graphic, loved up 
intros of TV nowadays. Can you imagine, like, almost like a softcore porno intro? I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, imagine Sky Sports in the 90s if they'd done women's football. Would you have had them in the changing room, topless in the you know bars or something like that? You know what, James? You could get away with a lot more up until about the late 1990s, where, where a, a journalist would have oh, in, yeah. their, in their contacts books the, the phone numbers of, of a hell of a lot of the players, a hell of a lot of the managers. Now, for example, mm-hmm. there, were, there were two big turning points in terms of televised football. The first came in the start of the 1988-89 season, where for four years, thanks to Greg Dyke's intuition, ITV ended up with the rights to the top flight for those four years leading up to the launch of the Premier League. And um, they, well, Greg Dyke was in charge of it. They effectively doubled the number of cameras at every ground. And Elton Wellsby, who I know to talk to, we interact on Twitter quite a bit. He was made ITV's lead presenter. And you can find footage on uh, YouTube of him introducing the programme from the changing room. Now, that would be unthinkable now. Yeah, can you imagine that? I know some non-leagues, they still allow the, the, the uh, football cameras in the, in the changing room. Mm. And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you another thing they used to do, and it, this stopped in about the mid-1990s, is particularly on ITV football, they used to do this a lot, is that the touchline interviewer tended to be um, Gary Newbon, occasionally Jim Rosenthal, but usually Gary Newbon, while the match was in progress, would go up and interview the manager. And you, you cannot imagine that now. Now, Howard Wilkinson, who was the last winner of the old first division with Leeds, um, he got ratty with Gary Newbon one time. Uh, a, a post-match interview and Gary threw him a question. Now, Howard, he's a very, he, to this day, he's still a very dry, laconic sense of humour. Um, but he's got a, he was known for having a bit of a prickly relationship with the press. Anyway, after the match, Gary Newbon threw him a question. He said, never mind that, Gary, let's talk about you. How would you like it if I interrupted you when you're doing your job, the way you did when I was doing mine, by coming up to me and interviewing me while the match is in progress? How would you like it if I just walked all over one of your links when you're trying to concentrate, Gary? How would you like that? And he really went for him. Now, that, that would be unthinkable now. I'll tell you what, there's two things that would be unthinkable now. One is an interviewer walking up to a manager while the game's in progress and trying to interview them then. Back then, it was acceptable. The other is, and this stopped in about 95, 96, whenever a player or a manager is interviewed either before or after a match these days, it's behind the backdrop of advertising boards. Yeah. Um, in those days, you could interview them before that. You could interview them on the side of a pitch or in the tunnel with a brick wall behind you. Anything. Nowadays, they are only interviewed with advertising behind them. That, you know, one thing. You know, one thing that actually, I think you. I think they. I'm pretty sure I watched the national league match and they interviewed someone at the pitch. They did, I think. Mm. I think it was. Um, yeah, it was last season. It was. I think it, they interviewed Salford United's manager during a match with Fylde, AFC Fylde, mm. our field, or however you say it. And they they still do it in non-league. It's interesting because it looks so weird because you wouldn't get it in a Premier League match. I mean, imagine going up to Pep. I'm going, hello, Pep, how's the match going? Mm, we yeah. told where to go. Yeah, well, it, it, as I say, up until about the mid-90s, it was quite normal. So that period, 88 to 92, was a big change. Then Sky came along, and Richard Keyes has, has talked about this a few times. And if you look at the early days of Sky Sports, particularly from the launch of the Premier League, Richard Keyes would wear coloured suits every week. One week he'd be in an all-yellow suit. Next week he'd be in an all-light blue suit. Next, next week, he'd be in a red suit. And he said the reason he had to do that, and he felt he had to do it, was to draw attention to Sky's coverage. Now, Sky and the, the late Vic Wakeling, who was head of Sky Sports at the time, they tried out all sorts of weird and wonderful innovations. Now, Vic Wakeling said when they, re- when they got the rights, and by the way, that went down to one vote when they got the rights to the 
newly formed Premier League. They beat ITV by a single vote. And you know the story there, don't you? Yeah, yeah. About that the chairman of Nottingham Forest couldn't make it, so he sent a secretary. The secretary mm-hmm. voted for Sky. If he had been there, he'd have voted for ITV. And the whole of history could have gone in a completely different direction. But anyway, Vic Wakeling said he decided that he was going to, him and senior producer Andy Melvin, were going to look at how sport was covered all around the world and see what they could learn. So they looked at American football. They decided, okay, we can put an on-screen clock with the score on it on, on in vision at all times. That was innovation number one. What can we learn about the way Australians cover, cover cricket? What can we learn about, you know, he just went all around the world looking at how different sports were covered. What can we learn from each one? And one of the things he did, this was just um, not long after this, Eric Cantona left Leeds United for Manchester United. Alex Ferguson made him a substitute. He said, put a camera in the tunnel and when the ball goes out of play, let's, let's watch him warming up. And now that was, that was seen as revolutionary at the time watching him just yeah, running down the tunnel, warming up. And another thing he did in the very early days, there was the Sky Strikers, which were a group of cheerleaders who used to get on the side of the pitch with, with you know, they're, they're, what you call it, popadom things, whatever you call them, um, shaking, shaking their, what you call them. And he used to have, um, in the early days as well, the, the match ball would be delivered by parachute. Uh, there'd be a plane over the ground and uh, someone would jump out with a parachute with the match ball in their hands. They also used to have um, firework displays after Monday night football. Um, that ended after I think one firework went astray one week and th- that came to an end. But in the early days of Sky, firework display after Monday night football every week. Um, so Sky really took things on to the next level. And Vic Wakeling's thinking was, he said, we had to get subscribers. We had to get people buying our product. And bearing in mind, installation cost 200 quid in those days. Um, and it, it, was, it was quite a job. And he said, if we're just getting the men on board, that means there's a woman of the house and possibly a young daughter who don't want Sky Sports in the house. We've got to find ways of engaging with them. So you had Richard Keyes dressing up in very loud suits in the early days and all these different innovations. And this took football coverage on British television onto a new level. And we haven't looked back since. Well, it's got very much more expensive since. <laughs> I think what's happened um, is it's become much more corporate and much more safe. You cannot imagine having cheerleaders, skimply, scantily clad cheerleaders on Sky Sports Football now. Having traveling to America a lot and watching uh, um, American sports quite a lot, I can. I wish we did, but hey ho. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I love those. I love going to Hooters for my wings and maybe some other things to look at. We and had I know a there was a Hooters in Cardiff. An we had a Hooters, Hooters in Cardiff. Cardiff. Yeah. Not very good for a veggie for you. It, it, but, it I mean, was, they, it was gone within months. Yeah, they did shrimp, um, like shrimp, uh, breaded shrimp, which is very nice, you would have liked. But it's a shame because things like that, I love the American side of things. But yeah, it doesn't work in the UK game. So, I mean, talking about breaded wings and shrimp from Hooters and my favourite American restaurant. um, One thing I've noticed while working in the supermarket is a distinct lack of eggs, flour and yeast. I don't know if you've had a look things like that uh, when you've been going shopping or even gone anywhere near it but you can't get it for love nor money mate i have noticed i noticed it in asda well the thing is just when the lockdown was about to begin and then in the early days when it did begin certain things disappeared very quickly you you would struggle to get hold of toilet roll eggs yeast flour were disappearing fast as was bread as were lots of frozen items then they started limiting how much of all this stuff you could buy. And they were encouraging people to just ease off, buy the normal amount, you'd be all right. Sure enough, now, nowadays, the last two, three weeks, you can get your toilet roll and your frozen stuff and your bread. All that is coming back in. No problem now. But yeah, 
I had noticed it, and I noticed the one place I could get yeast was the Cardiff Food Centre, which is the international food store on Dumbles Road, which is owned by, I think, a Turkish family. And they've got stuff from all over the world in there. They had, well, like, we couldn't be got anywhere else. They had yeast. They had pump soap to wash your hands, which I couldn't get anywhere else. And they had certain items, even at the lowest point when the shelves were being stripped bare, you could get most stuff there, including yeast. What I don't get, though, James, is everything else is now all right. People are back to buying normal amounts and people have calmed down a bit. In yeah, stock levels have stuff. got quite good in the supermarket now. They have. I was somewhat limited in my choice of beer in Morrison's this evening, but we'll let that go. Um, but I, you're right. I did notice day before yesterday when I was in Asda that yeast and flour, I didn't notice the eggs so much, but yeast and flour, it was completely bare. What's that all about? Why can't they get enough yeast and flour? Well, you know who I'm going to blame for this? And no, whilst I think he's been doing a good job, and it's been great to see and it's been helping people along, that bloody Jamie Oliver. <laughs> oh, what's he done now? Hey, well, have you not seen on TV for the past month? It, it finished last week, um, or past three weeks. He's done um, stay-at-home cooking, and he's done a sort of... The first, first week, he did it in a studio, and then locked down properly, like, basically sold them they can't have a live studio. And he's been doing it... His wife, Jules, has been filming it and helping his kids. It's great to see, because it gives... It's really good recipes to do with, at home with things you've got. But I know one of the things, and I tried it a few weeks ago, was a deep pan pizza. And right. he's done things like bread and stuff like that. So I think a lot of people probably watch this go, right, we'll go out tomorrow and get bread and yeast. Um, so flour and yeast. And it's gone mental. I mean, there were some on the shelves at Morrison's on, I think it was last Friday, there was some uh, yeast. And it literally gone within half an hour. And I couldn't believe it. It was amazing. I managed so to you're, you're blaming up. Jamie Oliver for this, are you? I am, yeah. Because we well, you know what people are fickle, aren't they? They'll, they'll follow the crowd. And, you know, a lot of people have been doing a lot of baking on TV. Um, well, all right, I, let's expand this then. Let's expand this and look at other strange and unusual programming and people doing their shows from home and all that sort of thing we're seeing at the moment. One of the things I've noticed, I don't know whether you've seen this, on the ITV evening news each evening, the half hour six bulletin, on the ad break, they have this sort of joint effort between BT and ITV. I've um, seen this, yeah. Yeah, and, and how to make the best use of your technology. And, and so far, we've had Claire Balding twice. We've had Jay Humphrey, presenter mm -hmm. of football on BT Sport, and we've had Fern Cotton. And they're all telling us various aspects of how to make the most of technology to improve our lives at this time. Um, we had um, Fern Cotton telling us how to look after our mental health. We had Claire Balding, I think, teaching us how to use WhatsApp the other day. We had Jay Humphrey teaching us how to use FaceTime or whatever it was. Um, so we've got that. We've also got, um, you may not remember, do you remember... Um, and Diamond and Nick Owen doing lots of data. Yeah. Was it Pebble, Pebble Island they did or Pebble Mill? Uh, I know what you're thinking of. You're almost correct. It was Pebble Mill. Pebble Mill, that was it. You're almost correct. I'll tell you what it was. And Diamond and Nick Owen. Um, actually, I, Nick Owen's an acquaintance. I, I, I get on all right with Nick Owen. He's a good lad. And uh, he's well connected in the snooker fraternity because he used to present ITV snooker coverage. He's a good man, Nick Owen. Um, it started off, they were both young journalists at um, ATV Central in the Midlands. Then they were hired by TVAM. And then Nick Owen, in the late 80s, got offered a contract by ITV Sport. And um, he, that, so that split the partnership up, him and Ann Diamond, for a few years. And um, then he left ITV Sport in about 93, 94. And they moved over to BBC One. And they had Good Morning with Ann and Nick, which was from Pebble Mill Studios in Birmingham. Now, the reason you know the Pebble Mill name and the reason you just said what you did is because there was another program from the same studios called Pebble Mill, which was a daytime chat show. 
which ran on and off from the 70s until about the mid to late 90s. The last few hosts were Alan Titchmarsh and Judy, Judy Spires. It was, for many years, it was called Pebble Mill at One. When they started yeah. putting the news on at One, they moved it to later in the afternoon. They just called it Pebble Mill. Um, the Pebble Mill Studios in Birmingham were the home of Good Morning with Anne and Nick, which was a direct rival to This Morning for about three or four years. Yeah. Um, and anyway, those two are now back together again, doing a chat show every Monday on YouTube from both their oh, okay. respective homes. Uh, Nick is now a newsreader on BBC West Midlands. That's his day job. But every Monday at three o'clock, she's in her home, she, he's in his, and um, they just have guests on and they just chat. It's like old times. Um, so th those two are back together doing what they do. We're getting various radio presenters are doing their programs from home. Julia Hartley Brewer on Talk Radio Breakfast is doing her show from home. But it is weird that to see different ways people are working. It's like even on Good Morning Britain, you've got Piers Morgan and Susanna Reid. They're both still there, but they are sat well apart now. Yeah, so, I mean, one thing that's interesting me is um, on, um, oh, what is it? Um, um, oh, sorry, it's Meridian. That's what it's called, obviously, my local name. I forgot that for a second. I don't know why. But Meridian... Fred Dynage is at home. I don't know if that's something to do with his age or anything, but he's at he's home. He's 79. He, yeah, he appears on webcam mm. every um, sort of towards the end of the broadcast and does a few sort of shout outs, which is weird to see. But hey, mm. you know, what? what can you, I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, you know, it, it is strange. Um, I mean, all these baking things, you'll you'll, you'll be pleased to know, Marcus. And it was a little bit of an extravagant purchase for me, but. Um, Obviously, you being half Italian, I am... Um, quarter Italian, I am. Quarter Italian. And obviously, I know you've got family over there in North Italy. Yeah, yeah. Um, me and Vicky bought a pizza oven for outside. Mm. And uh, we're going to make a go of uh, some pizza ovens by Uni um, and making some homemade pizzas in uh, on our days off. It's something we've looked at for a while, but they nicely offered frontline work a discount. And I managed to take advantage of that. And uh, we've got some pizzas. I'm looking at recipes and everything like that this evening on how to make perfect pizza. Uh, have you ever made pizza at home? Well, I, I'm just coming on to this now. I'm very glad you mentioned that because you may not even know this about me. For about a year now, and you've visited me at least twice since this has happened, but I don't think I've shown you, I have got a pizza oven. I bought it on Amazon about a year or so ago, and it's got um, a stone base, a, a traditional stone mm -hmm. base, and you can make your own from fresh, or you can just put a frozen one in there, and I, I've become familiar with the settings, how to do it. You start on a level two, then you crank it up to a level four. And you can cook a frozen pizza in 10 minutes there, no problem at all. I haven't bothered to do one from scratch um, because I, I don't know why. I'm, well, the thing is, my family are Northern Italy. Now, Southern Italy is where they really make the best pizzas. Northern Italy are pasta connoisseurs. Um, Southern Italy are more pizza connoisseurs. I've never actually had the bottle to try making one from scratch. So I'm going to watch from a safe distance as you do, you and Vicky do what you do. And let me know how you get on. I might risk it. You might persuade me at this point. Just it's funny. This, this pizza oven goes up to 900 degrees and cooks pizza within 90 seconds. So I'm going to have to keep an eye on it. And where did you get it from? Uni. It's mm. a pizza manufacturer website. So, uh, it, they, they make perfect, like ovens for home, and I think it was a Kickstarter thing years ago or something like that, but mm. gas-powered one, so when it comes, I'm going to have to get go and get a little gas tank from the local gas tank suppliers, and um, I'm looking forward to trying it, mate, because as, as a lot of people say, pizza shouldn't be an unhealthy thing, because as long as you make it decent with decent toppings, it shouldn't be calorific, but it's the American-style pizzas that everyone eats, like from Domino's and Pizza Hut and Papa John's, are the ones that put the calories on. 
Yeah, well, it's it's the thick crust base that does it. If you, yeah, all you need is a thin crust. Yeah, if, if you've got a thin crust base, you should be all right. Um, but so, you know, if you think now you've got a thin base, you've got your tomatoes, you've got your veg. In your case, you've got your meat. I don't eat meat, as you know. But if you've, yeah. got, if you've got a thin base and it's packed full of tomatoes and veg, there's no reason why it should be unhealthy. Yeah, no, it shouldn't be. shouldn't mm. be at all. Mm. Mm. So when, when uh, you're going to crack on with that, you're going to let us know next month what the result's going to be, are you? Yeah, when, when I receive it, I'll send you a picture. I'll probably go Facebook Live or something. Mm. Mm. Well, we, we, we look forward to that, certainly. So what other culinary delights have you been uh, knocking up recently? Um, well, tonight, I mean, because the way our shifts work, Vicky's also working in the supermarket as well. She works from 5 to uh, later at night, and then we're, uh, 5 to 11. Um, I'm eating dinner a lot at home. So tonight I actually cooked uh, seafood pasta, which I think you would have liked, because obviously you're yeah. a pescatarian. Did um, you cook that just... for me when I was down your way? Did I... Well, no, I don't think oh, I might have. But no, because Vicky it doesn't was, like it that. Was in, it was in a greenish sort of sauce when, when, you, when I was down your way. It was, it was full of... Uh, green vegetables, wasn't it? Pasta dish? Yeah, you did it, yeah. I really can't think, to be honest, yeah, mate. Yeah, but, um, but, I mean, I'm sure I did, yeah. I mean, sure I did, but, you know, I, would have, I was thinking what I would have done, because Vicky doesn't really like all the seafood stuff that I use, like the mussels, and hmm. she likes the prawns, and she likes the um, um, shrimp, but uh, prawns and uh, squid, but she doesn't like the mussels, so I don't think it would be that, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I do like cooking it up, but you know, a lot of things we we when when all this rubbish of panic buying started, we made sure because we weren't sure of our job, and obviously, if we had been flying around, we didn't know um, what the situation would be when we get back. We didn't want to have nothing, so we bulk bought a lot of frozen veg. So last night, Vicky made some fajitas, which were lovely, some chicken fajitas, which are delicious. Um, but we're using it all up. We haven't just bought for the sake of buying. We bought the stuff that we'd actually use because, hmm. as you know, we buy our meat in bulk. So, like, this week, we're, we, we've one thing that's been quite nice is, obviously, as you know, we don't, you know, our, our days off vary all the time. We don't know when we're going to be home. We're going to be home, what meals we're going to be having. But we had, um, we've been having roast dinners every Sunday, which has been absolutely fantastic. Hmm. Um, last couple, we've had chicken. Um, we went to the local um, meat meat supplier here, Malpass in uh, Shoreham, um, at the weekend, and we got a beef rib joint which we've cut in half. So the next couple of Sundays will be sorted some delicious beef rib. And you know we've 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 been cooking everything fresh, which has been lovely. There've been no pre-packaged stuff. Um, working at the pizza delivery, sometimes you get a pizza late at night if you're you're on the late shift. So that's covered a couple of meals. But you know it's it's been really really good. And you know I've been making packed lunches to save some money because obviously. I don't want to be going to all I work in the supermarket and get a discount. I don't want to be just buying sandwiches every day because it mounts up. But we've got the suppliers at home. Um, also from that meat supplier, I bought ham hocks, three ham hocks for a fiber, which is like the ham joint bone. Put it in a slow cooker. You know, having ham hocks. I've had ham hock sandwiches the last couple of days with some cheese, which has been really good. You know, things like that. And, you know, it's, it's making the most of what you've got. Yeah. And, and this is what, I, this I, is what a word of warning me. for you, though. A word of warning for you, though supermarket sandwiches and i mean this keep a very close eye on the salt content because oh mate i don't really eat them to be fair that's why i make my own at home the the, the supermarket sandwich has got far more salt and preservatives in it than the ones you make at home without i never i never feel satisfied eating a supermarket sandwich you know you get the meal deal it's like three quid three fifty they're they're always so greasy and have got too much mayonnaise in them or the cheese doesn't taste right i mean i always say to people you know people say oh, I need to save a bit of money for my holiday. And I say, okay, you work in the centre of Cardiff or wherever. I say, what do you do at lunchtime? 
who I pop over to Starbucks and then I pop over to Sainsbury's. I buy a, a packet of sandwiches and I get my coffee from Starbucks. I say, hang on a minute. If you made your sandwiches from home with your own loaf of bread and you, you made them the night before, you put it in a container, put the container in the fridge, that would cost you pence. You buy something called a thermos flask. You fill it up with your own coffee. You've saved six, seven quid a day there quite easy. Now you do that, yeah. that's, that's 35 quid a week. That's 140 quid a month. Well, that's more than paid for your holiday. It's probably gone a long way towards paying for your mortgage, come to think of it. Just I mean, we've, we've, got, we've got a coffee machine. I mean, we've got a Fandango one. I don't know if you had it when we were here, but when you were last here. But it, we often do that in the morning. I have a couple of coffees a day. But, you know, I love coffee. Um, it's great to get the discount and stuff. But, you know, it's been, it's been good in terms of that. Um, you know, being able to cook. I, I love the fact that people are starting to, like, cook more at home and cook fresh. It's going to be all good for health-wise because, you know, a lot of the processed stuff, you know, there's nothing better. And I mean, Vicky's always found it weird with me that I would prefer to come home from work and cook something fresh rather than whack a ready meal in the freezer um, into the oven because I prefer, and it relaxes me. Well, I'll, I will say this now. It's good if people are doing that, but we need to think about our health and how we are keeping healthy at this time, uh, both in terms of our physical and our mental well-being, because getting out and about is obviously far more difficult than it would normally be. And we're only meant to leave the house for an hour a day to do our exercise. And even then it's difficult, but to touch very briefly, a little bit of crossover here from what we discussed on the coronavirus update podcast with myself, Greg Lance Watkins in terms of, and I, I'd be interested to see how you're coping with this as, with your work aside. But for example, one of the things we were due to start the world snooker championship on Saturday, just gone. And it was due to run for the next 17 days. And obviously that's not happening now. And, one of the ways the BBC is keeping us entertained is by rerunning old matches every day. And uh, last Saturday, just gone, the afternoon, they showed um, the, the biggest shock of all time at the World Championship, which was round one, 1982. Tony Knowles beat defending champion Steve Davis 10-1. And on commentary was the only time, the only year the BBC has ever used a lady commentator, a lady by the name of Vera Selby, a 1976 world champion, the first ever women's world champion. Vera is, was awarded an MBE about five years ago. She's now aged 90, lives in Gosforth in the northeast of England. And two to three days a week, she's out either playing, she still plays to a good standard, coaching or refereeing. And she, likes, she, she gave an interview a few years ago to a newspaper and she said, look, growing old is compulsory, but you don't have to behave like a little old lady. And I certainly don't, she said. And, you know, I, I know she has the respect of a lot of younger people in the snooker fraternity in that part of the world and worldwide in the women's snooker fraternity in particular. Now, she has gone, as a result of this lockdown, from being out two or three afternoons and evenings a week to being not able to mix with anyone. And not just from her point of view. Now, you, at 90 years of age, that must be, you know, that's what's keeping her young in effect. All right, she's safe-ish from coronavirus. But in terms of mental and physical well-being, it can't be doing her any good. And the same, you can apply that to thousands of people up and down the country. No, not at all. I mean, talking about snooker, have you been watching the darts at home thing by PDC? Very much so. Yeah, absolutely I have. And uh, I have to say, James, it hasn't been too bad for the Welsh so far, has it? No, it's not. Uh, I'd, like to, I'd, like to, I'd like that the ice, Iceman got beaten, though, quite significantly. He, he, he didn't do too well, but Jamie Lewis did very well. And then last night, Nick nice. Kenny from Cumbran did very well. So the, the a compliment from you is when I put it on my webcam on my Facebook Live last week, I did a couple of live streams of me playing around the clock. You were quite impressed by the quality and said it was actually a lot better than what some of them were. I was. You know, the, the, the big problem with you, James, is a pity you're a crap player, really, because if you were a good player, 
and you had a PDC tour card, your streaming quality would be way ahead of theirs. Now, we've got a big problem with this PDC home tour. They had a few test nights a few weeks ago, fortnight ago, and then Barry Hearn and the PDC said, right, let's just blow the whole thing up. Uh, if you've got a PDC tour card, you're entitled to take part. And what they have is they have a round-robin group every evening, and you can watch for free on pdc.tv. You just have to register. You don't have to pay any subscription. And they are, um, there's groups of four. Everyone plays three matches. They haven't – you know what? This is so haphazard and so last minute. They haven't decided what they're going to do with the winners yet, um, uh, the winners of each group, where they're going to progress to the next stage and what have you. But the way it works is you're, you're in your house, your opponent is in their house. They've got the software to do the scoring. They've got Dan Dawson, the, uh, the presenter and the MC, if you like, talking you through it for the viewers, benefit the viewers mainly. Yeah. And they have a competitive game of darts. Now, the, the big star so far was uh, Luke Woodhouse, the uh, Englishman, about three or four nights ago. He had a nine-dart checkout. And I yeah, think, that was amazing. Yeah. yeah, he won all three of his matches. And, was, that about uh, Ger- was that against Gerwin? Uh, one of them was, yeah. One of them was. Yeah. Um, and the, the thing is, here's the thing. He, he did the nine dart checkout. My, my friend John Lowe, when he did the first ever televised nine darter in 1984 at the MFI World Match Play in October 84, he got a first prize of £100,000, and that was in 1984 money. Wow. What, what did Luke Woodhouse get the other night? Nothing. A badge. A badge? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, absolutely true. Uh, and all the money that's in darts and stuff, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. They, I mean, it's quite funny because, as you know, one of my, one of my friends that I've known for a long time since uh, BMI days, uh, Tracy, she, her brother, Andy Bolton, um, I didn't know that. I didn't, I've known her for years and she's a good friend of mine. The X Factor, Andy Bolton. The X Factor, I never put two and two together. And she said he's up for giving you a game. And I said, are you taking the mick? Because at the end of the day, he would absolutely smash me. I, would, I wouldn't get anywhere near. Uh, be, uh, as funny. the late, great Sid Waddell would say, it would be the nearest thing to a public execution this side of Saudi Arabia. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I was doing all right around the clock the other night. And then the, the one last one I did was pretty awful, to be fair. But, you know, I, I keep saying to you, mate, wait, wait. If you get a little bit of money and you can get yourself one, I would love to do it with you if we're on this lockdown for a lot longer because it'd be great to even see if you get a second-hand one on eBay or something because well, it'd be fantastic you know, to play. What I, what I need is one of those things Unicorn uh, are making now, and this is what John Lowe is actually trying to sell at the moment because he's been a Unicorn ambassador for decades and decades and decades, going way back. I need one of those frame things because I yeah. can't put a dartboard against the wall here because it would irritate the neighbours because I'm in a top-floor flat. The walls are just too thin. I need one of those things where the dartboard stands on the stand that Unicorn make. So you put the dartboard on the stand, then you roll out the Oki. So you've got the Oki, which is correct length. Um, that would be the way I would need to do it. Uh, so you've got the height right, the Oki length right, and it stands not against the wall, and your neighbours never know anything about it. Because I became very aware. I bought a dartboard. My, I bought a Harrow's dartboard. It was my first year of university. I hung it on my wall, and I was throwing darts at it. And I could hear someone punching on the other side of the wall. And I thought I'd ignore that. And next thing you know, there's someone knocking on my door. The person in the adjacent flat could hear me throwing darts against the wall. And so I'm very aware, unless, you know, okay, it's okay for you because you live in the house. Um, but Mine's is actually in the garage. Yeah, yours is in, yours is in your, your private pub, we should really call it. Which yeah, is, well, it's gonna, eventually going to be two yeah, black cats. So, so I'm, I've, ever since then, I've been very much aware. But you know, I made a bit of history in darts, don't you, when I was at uni? What was that? I, was, I, am the, I have gone down in history. I had a young man in um, who was a mature student, only a few years older than us, came in, did uh, an interview with me about darts on, our, on my radio show, on student radio. And um, he decided to set up a University of Liverpool Darts League 
I, it just so happened the way the draw panned out, I was the first person ever to throw a dart in the University of Liverpool Darts League, and this would have been early 2005. And I won my match, and I went on the website, and I printed off the league table. Not because I'm any good, but because for that little period of time, Marcus Stead was top of the University of Liverpool Darts League. And I, I was, I mean, I've read Darts autobiography. I mean, fascinated by darts and players and referees and everything for years and years. And I was, I've been interested in darts psychology, how you can get up a couple of legs up. Now, it was up to you. The way it worked is it was up to you to contact your opponent and arrange a mutually convenient time. It tended to be Friday early afternoons when I wanted to play. And I looked, I was, I was due to play a lady called Elaine. And I thought, okay, this will probably be um, uh, the head of the league, a guy called James Gaynor. This will probably be his girlfriend or something, I guess. And he just managed to rope her into playing this. So I thought, right, I've got, a, I've got a phone number. I'm going to send her a text message. And there was no WhatsApp in those days, just text message. I said, hi, Elaine, um, is this a good day for you? Friday, should we say one o'clock, two o'clock, whatever, in the darts room at the Students' Union? Uh, yeah, that's good for me. I'll see you there. I said, okay, thanks. And then I put in the, my last text to her. You better get some practice in this. No way I'm losing to a girl. I put that in there because I, I learned it was the first of four legs. If you could get one or two legs up in their heads, you could get in their heads and play psychological games. You could be one or two legs up before you've even thrown a dart. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, yeah, 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 of course. Eric Bristow was the master at this sort of thing. Now, 1983, the 83 final uh, was the famous final. He tried to wind up Keith Della. And um, it was Eric Bristow, Keith Della in the final. Eric Bristow, heavy, heavy favourite. Keith Della, former Ipswich Town ball boy, used to be a ball boy at Portland Road football ground, everything else. Alan Brazil knew him and all that sort of thing. And uh, Eric Bristow walked up to Keith Della and he said, Hiya, Keith, um, you're from Ipswich, aren't you? And he said, yeah, that's right, Eric. He said, um, here's a train ticket, um, take you to Ipswich. It leaves in 20 minutes. I'd get on that train if I was you. There's no way you're going to beat me tonight. Um, so he was trying to get inside Keith Della's head. Now that, of course, the 83 World Finals, the famous one, Eric Bristow played a percentage shot. Keith Della was left with 138, took out 138 and beat Bristow. That was the famous finish to that. It's fascinating. Very good match that. Look it up on YouTube if you haven't seen it. But anyway, so I, I, I used to play these little games and sometimes I was one or two legs up before we, a dart had even been thrown against people I didn't know. And on this case, I thought, I, I put, there's no way I'm losing to a girl. Anyway, I turn up. This girl is not a girl. She's not a student. She's a middle-aged woman, right? And she's there with her husband. And it turns out her husband, I'm not going to name him, the, the gang, but he was well-connected with Liverpool gangsters, I found out. Very oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, she was a damn good player. She was playing solid darts. She won, don't get me wrong, she won and she won good. Um, she had a good sense of humor. She was, laugh, she was laughing off my attempts at winding her up. She'd seen it all and done it all. But that was just, you know, my attempt to get in her head, it, oh, it backfired on that occasion, but... I, it helped me win matches on other occasions. But University of Liverpool darts, um, not a great play. I could hit a couple of tons. I took out a couple of decent checkouts. Um, but it, it, was, it was good fun. It was good fun. And I, can, you I, not get, can you not get John to get you one of these at a discount? I heard from John the other day, right? And John told me something, this is on a more serious note now, on about loneliness during this um, pandemic and everything else. He said he knows somebody near yeah. Chesterfield. And this person is ordering stuff off Amazon. Do you know why? Why? Just so they can talk to someone once a day when the Amazon delivery person arrives. Oh, really? That's Just nice. so they can see... Sad, sad, but... 
it's nice though, isn't it? But mate, I'll tell you what, it's your challenge. Well, I'll, I'll keep chasing his feet. I think after we finish now, send him a little message and say, is there anything he can do to help you out? All right, all right. I, I, I tend to call in favours sparingly. I've got lots of favours everywhere. I think this is, I think this is a good favour. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a bit of a one-off, but I think it's quite a nice one. Um, it's, it's not for yeah, just... I, I don't want to go... I, you know, j- jokes aside, I don't want to go too far with that because John is over 70. I don't want him making unnecessary trips outside the house on my behalf. Oh, I don't think he will. Probably just get in touch with someone. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we'll take that. But yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to play competitive darts again. But you're, so you're enjoying yourself in your, in your little man cave in the bottom of the garden, and that, that's coming on nicely. And how's, how's your, by the way, your beer glass collection? Oh, I've got loads of beer glasses, mate. Because you've got a brain <laughs> so I, managed, I managed to, I managed to smuggle. Well, I, I yeah, Nick. Well, and we just asked the barmaid if he could have it, and then uh, I've got a. Uh, I've got a Brains Craft Brewery, which we got from that bar down at the um, at the Cardiff Bay. Do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah. When it you, first you, opened, I just pinched that one. <laughs> you did, yeah, you did. Um, um, got I've got so Glamorgan. many. You got one from the Glamorgan, haven't you? Yeah, which I legitimately bought. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, to be honest, mate, I, I, that's one drink Welsh beer. I think it is, isn't it the one I've got mm. from there. Yeah, that's, that was... Uh, you know, to, to most, Vicky gets annoyed with the amount of glasses I've got, so she put most of them out in the gallery, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, at the end of the day, I, I do love beer. I mean, looking back on that, when we had that tragic night out in... Um, where was it again? It was... When When did I come down before the January one? Was it November? No, late November it was, yeah. Yeah, and we had that night out, which was brilliant. It was really good, wasn't it? It was a good bloody night out, but it was yeah. also tragic AF. It was so tragic. You were about when we ended up in Salt Bar in Cardiff Bay and it was... <laughs> yeah, and we were like the only people. With, and the, the only, like, obviously I was trying to set Marcus up with anything going, but he wasn't really, he wasn't really playing. There was no one playing, there, playing was there? There was, there was, uh, there, was a, there, there was a couple of people that, that we were trying to, hey, have met my mate Marcus, but no, it was... Um, there was no action. <laughs> there wasn't, but it was fun, wasn't it? It was fun. It was a good night but, out, don't get me wrong, yeah. It was, but yeah, it was it was a bit weird as well. But it was just a laugh. That's all it was. It was just a laugh. Yeah. So you you've got a good glass collection coming for your pub now, um, and that that's all coming together. How close is your pub to its official opening? Nowhere near, mate. There is much work to be done, is there? There is nowhere near. Yeah. I mean, I haven't even started, mate. I've got a. You know what I want to do? It's not just bringing some together. I want to actually put stuff stuff in. Do you know what I mean? Um, I want to put stuff in the. Um, in the store, I want to put. I just want to make it proper, like insulate it, put some light in it. But obviously, some of that stuff needs to be done with uh, um, an electrician and all that yeah, malarkey. Yeah. So you know, I can't. Yeah, you mustn't take any chances. You don't want people coming around your house now, and and you know, we're not meant no. to our homes, are we? No. So I can't. I can't do it. So you know, at the moment, which is, mm. which is sad. But you know, at the end of the day, it's um, it's it, it's just. It's something that will get there, but obviously there's more important things to spend money on. And, of course. And, and do you, you know, know what? Uh, we talk about the pub game and all that. You've got to bear in mind, with every single day that passes, the number of pubs, restaurants, cafes that will never reopen is getting bigger by the day. And this is going to be, the impact on the economy is going to be absolutely devastating of what's going on at the moment. Small and medium-sized yeah. businesses is going to be horrendous, mate, I tell you. Yeah, and it's like what I said to you. Like, obviously, I mentioned it at the beginning of the, at the beginning of the podcast, but you know, obviously, our favourite place in Cardiff 
um, pillars. pillars. I, I found it went so much downhill uh, when I last went there, and it was such a shame because it was it was a bloody good place. And yeah. I felt, and you look, you just need to look at the um, reviews on um, TripAdvisor. Yeah. TripAdvisor, to everyone's echoing my thing. It was once a good place. The quality of food's gone down. I mean, you're yeah, don't get it wrong. You had a fresh fish and chips, it was lovely. But I had a chicken. Uh, and it was dry as anything, and you know it's just such a shame. Well, well, well for, for those for those who've never been there, there's we, we ought, ought to put a bit of meat on the bone without wishing to put too fine a point on it. There's this place in Cardiff, on the, in the middle of Queen Street, where you have to go down a set of stairs, and you enter a sort of 1970s time warp because that is what it's it a time warp. Yeah. yeah, it's a place called Pillars, and they served for many years a, a lot of what what you could call canteen food, where you know there, there'd be stuff you order. You slide your tray along with the serving area. Certain stuff they cook for you fresh. And then you sort of sit in this 70s time warp. And it was very good value. Uh, English food, lasagna, fish and chips, uh, traditional English breakfast, whatever. And it's, yeah, it's, it's been there for donkey's years. And they had a sister restaurant called the Louis. And the history was, I don't know which order it happened in, but there was the Louis on St. Mary Street, Pillars on Queen Street. And there were two brothers who fell out with each other. And they, one of them ended up setting up a rival one. Uh, you know, a matter of a 10 minute walk away, if that. Brothers have long since made it up. They're both in old age now and they're getting on fine. The Louis closed very abruptly about three years ago, and that was also a 70s time warp. Pillars is still going, but after what, the best part of it, more than a decade, I think, of taking you there, it's now gone downhill. And the TripAdvisor reviews are backing that up. And obviously, it's closed now, like everywhere else is at the moment. But it has got to raise its game. But that was the place I used to send people to in Cardiff if they wanted to eat without spending a fortune. Yeah, it was just, it was just dirty, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, it was. It was nowhere near up to its uh, to its usual standard, which is um, very, very disappointing. But I'm just thinking now, you know, greasy spoon cafes, quirky cafes, small country pub, pubs, small local pubs, what have you. How many of yeah. them that have closed? Are not going to be able. I'll give you one example, and he won't mind me saying this. Um, Darren Morgan, the uh, the Welsh snooker player, the Red Triangle Snooker Club in Cross Keys in the Welsh Valleys. In fact, we went very, very near it when we went to uh, the Tiny Rebel Brewing Place when you were down here. When we went, because we went to um, what do you call it? We went to the the, the big pit in Bryn Mawr, didn't we? That day. Yeah, that was great. That was excellent. Love that. That was a lovely trip. And then we called on um, Tiny Rebel Brewing Company, and then we headed back towards Cardiff. We went. Had a couple of pints there. It was lovely. We did. We went. We went through Cross Keys, which is the uh, the small town in question. And Darren, which is where where Darren is from, the former world number eight, uh, Darren Morgan. Uh, by the way, for those of you who are snooker fans, uh, World Snooker of today uploaded onto YouTube the nineteen ninety seven second round match of the World Championship, where Darren won the deciding frame to beat Ronnie O'Sullivan. That's now on YouTube as of today. If you're a snooker fan, watch it. Nineteen ninety seven. Look it up. But anyway, Darren's family have run the Red Triangle in Cross Keys since nineteen eighty three. Darren's parents died within a few months of each other in about 1999. Darren has run that club ever since. And he announced on the day Boris Johnson said, we're going into lockdown as of this Friday night. Darren said, if this goes on for more than a month, the Red Triangle is not going to reopen. Because Darren has got his property business. He's got a, a Darren Morgan Sports, which makes school uniforms and trophies for sports. He's one of the main school uniform suppliers for that part of South Wales. And he said, you know, he's been running it just about breaking even for a long time. He's in it for love. He's in it for love of snooker. He's looking for a way to stay involved. 
but this is probably the straw that's going to break the camel's back with every day that passes. He said, if this goes on, I think more, you'll find a lot of them like that. I wouldn't. I, I think. I think Verge Atlantic will be gone. Sadly, mm. um, obviously, I've been employed by them. I just don't think the government are going to take Branson's sort of pity party because you know he has got a lot of money. Um, yeah, he's talking and, crap, is what he's doing. Let's not mince Yeah, that. exactly. But the thing that's quite hard is I've got a lot of people on my Facebook that are Virgin employees, and I feel like saying, "Stop!" He—he—he's a fraud. Like I don't like Branson and the way he runs his business. Can I just say, but, if you want to learn a little bit about Richard Branson, the book to read is the biography, unofficial biography Tom Bauer wrote about him. Tom B O W E R. That is a fascinating book about the sheer number of failed businesses and frankly dodgy ventures Richard Branson has been involved in going back the best part of 50 years now. Um, we went on about in the very early days, we know he got arrested and everything that happened when he was smuggling records into the country and all that sort of thing. But the, the sheer, whether it's Virgin Brides, Virgin Cola, he's been involved in all sorts of things that are not quite as they seem. It's not, like a failed business. I've got nothing against people trying things out in business and not succeeding when you leave a trail of destruction behind you, I do have a problem with it. And that is very often what's happened in the case of uh, Richard Branson. But anyway, we're going to take a short break now. I'm going to get another beer and I'm going to talk non-league football. So Marcus, uh, the, it, the weather, as we said, is absolutely beautiful outside right now. And I should have been just returning from my vacation, my holiday to the States on a cruise, which obviously didn't happen. And I should be probably going to Worthing next weekend and seeing them lift the trophy which would have been the final game of the season. And that absolutely kills me, mate, because as you know, as a lot of people know, step three and below, season was nulled and voided a couple of weeks ago. It was officially ratified by the FA a couple of weeks ago. And today, which is the uh, 22nd of April, um, the National League has now voided their league. Um, but they haven't decided on promotional relegation yet. If there is relegation, then I don't see why we can't be promoted. But if... There isn't, and it goes down to another. It's, it's just such a mess. I mean, obviously, there's more important things in the world than football right now, but the inconsistency across the board from the FA is, un, it's, it, to me, is unacceptable. The first thing I would say in relation to this is that the way in which the FA has handled it has been appalling. Now, where you and I had a difference of opinion some weeks ago is that I don't believe it would be appropriate to discuss this in the House of Commons right now, and we've seen in Parliament today how they tried to have Prime Minister's questions. And we had a sort of Parliament via Zoom, if you like, where we had 50 MPs in the chamber, all very yeah. spaced out, and another X number contributing via Zoom. And that's the first time in 700, what, no, 800 years of parliamentary history that anything like that has ever been done. So I don't think it'd be a good use of parliamentary time, and Parliament doesn't have authority to discuss it anyway. But from the FA's point of view, what we have got here is the way, I tell you what really gets to me, is the way in which they started with the lower end, but then treated it as though it was in some way less important than what went up higher up the pyramid. They, yeah. were treat, they would treat it, oh, they, it was as though they're thinking, oh, they're less likely to sue us. Let's, let's declare their season null and void now. We'll worry about what's gone on higher up the pyramid at a later date. They're, they're not as important. That is what bothered me. And the second point I would make, it does, I'm afraid, and the government's not going to admit this now, but I don't want you to vote for me, certainly not at the moment, so I can perhaps speak a little bit more freely. It does seem clear to me that even if there are some very slight restrictions, uh, restrictions lifted on the way we go about our lives in the weeks ahead, 
whether that's children's clothes shops reopening, because if you're living at home with a young child, it may well be that after two months in lockdown, your child is outgrowing their clothes and therefore children's clothes are no longer a luxury, they're an essential. So it may well be that things like children's clothes shops reopen. I've already said in this podcast about the situation Australia and New Zealand are in, where they have got it under control, but by lifting the restrictions, there would likely be a second wave. I'm afraid until we have a vaccine, and that might be some time away, and bearing in mind there still isn't a vaccine for the common cold, that's the worst case scenario, we're stuck with it forever. There is no vaccine for the common cold. It, I can't see things like mass gatherings and football matches resuming. So let me ask you a very simple question. How do you have a football match where there's social distancing? Well, it's Marcus, not- the thing is, as you know that I do a podcast, Rebel Yell, the podcast, and as you know, we've done, you're the voice of the Rebel Yell, the podcast. And um, as you know, rebelyell.live. That's it, mate. And, and you know that the, um, the last few weeks, we've done a few live broadcasts. And I know you listened on Saturday. Um, and our captain, Darren Budd, said, at the end of the day, if he was paid 50 grand a week, 100 grand a week, and was told to play two matches a week, and the current thing without a, without a um, vaccine, then maybe he'd consider it. But a lot of these players going from League One downwards are not on very much money. And if you're telling them to play two matches a week with players where we know there's not a vaccine, and you, unless they're in complete isolation from everyone, you can't expect them to go and play football even without a crowd because it's a contact sport. There's sweat, there's spit, there's everything. You know, you cannot expect footballers to be comfortable with playing. So why can't they do it across the whole board? Well, well, let me make a very basic point here. There's a lot of talk at the moment about masks and should we be wearing masks or not. The virus can spread from a a distance and a little bit of spit coming out of your mouth, one thousandth of a millimetre. And with that in mind, the little tiny holes in a mask that are inevitably inevitably going to be where with cotton and what have you, the the, the value of wearing a mask when you're out in public is debatable. Let me ask another question. What's the name of this player, sorry? Uh, Darren Budd. Right, Darren Budd. Okay. How well do you know him? I know him very well. He's Worthing's captain. I know him okay. personally. Okay. Okay. He does a lot of things, yeah. So he may have a girlfriend. He may be married. He's, got, he's married with kids. He's married with kids. Okay, all right. You've answered the question. Right. So he gets his 50... Let, let's say he was on really good money then, is the point he made on the poly. Let's pretend he was on a lot more money than he actually is, and he was on 50 yeah. week, And he went out and took that risk. He may not get the virus very severely. He may not even have symptoms at all. But then he goes home. He's got a wife. He's got children. Yeah. His parents come and visit. Her parents come and visit. That would be a risk. He, he would. He, what I'm getting at. He would be a carrier. So exactly he what he said, mate. Exactly what he said. He said even with the amount of money he might earn, he still wouldn't be comfortable doing it. But let alone someone that is um, playing that amount of money. Hmm. So, so exactly. This is the point I'm getting at. So with that thought in mind. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I know people are saying, oh, will it be September, will it be August? I'm sorry, I cannot see, look, even if you could get away with it, even if the government said do it, who the hell would want to do it right now? Who would no. want to put themselves... Without a vaccine, you can't. And what I think is, end this season, you know, sides of the 
Paddles United support Worthing FC, which is a non-league club, who are probably going to get promoted into the Conference South, National South. And I support Cholton, who the last fixtures, we actually sat in third from bottom, which means relegation to League One, which would be absolutely devastating. So if the league was void and cancelled, then great. Cholton would stay up, but Worthing was in. But at the end of the day, everyone is safe. We can then rebuild. We can then delay the season. We don't have to wait for anything else. I am actually gutted, and a lot of people probably disagree with me, that Liverpool won't lead, win the league because I think they thoroughly deserve that win. And it is a great shame that they won't get that. But, needs must, it's happened to other clubs. There are going to be clubs in Championship, League One, League Two, National, can I, can National, National South, National Worthing. Why is Worthing any different? Yeah, one sec, mate. Well, why is Worthing any different from Liverpool? They've earned their way to be at the top. So if Worthing can't be promoted as champions, then why should Liverpool win the Premier League? There's only one fair way of doing this, and it's this. Whether you're Liverpool, whether you're Worthing, whether you're two men and a dog in a Sunday league team, we wait until it is safe to resume normal life, and that will not be any time soon, and we take stock of the situation then. Now, if that means, for example, that this time next year a vaccine exists, we've all had it, and it's safe for us to go out again and everything else, and we finish off the 10 games, whatever that's left, then that's the way we do it. That is the only fair way of doing it, whether you're Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool, whether you're Darren at Worthing, whoever. That is the only fair way of doing it. And we I agree, but unfortunately, leagues have already been nulled and voided, so that they can't happen. They shouldn't have been. Yeah, they should have been. It was a rash decision. They should have waited for a while. They should have waited until the end of the physical season and they could demand it. They should start talking about it now, not a month ago. Um, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of clubs need money. There's a lot of contract issues. As Lee Boyer said, Charlton's manager said, on um, I think uh, to the local press in London, um, why should a player have to stay beyond June the 30th? If he wants you, to go, you, he doesn't have to play. You've, you've explained the situation well there. Well, for example, if you were planning to leave at the end of this season and go to wherever, whether that's for professional footballing reasons or for personal reasons, at the end of the day, none of us are going anywhere at the moment. And no. I would say... To an, there's no perfect way out of this and, and there's an, an inevitability of court cases and legal situations. We have to rely on people's goodwill a little bit to honour yeah. commitments they have made and accept that there hasn't been a situation like this for 100 years since the Spanish flu at the end of World War I. And I know I've said this in other podcasts, James, but more people died of the Spanish flu in 1918 than died in the trenches of World War I. And I'm not saying what we're experiencing now is on the same scale of that. But I'm afraid, I, 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 when I just look at the evidence that's in front of me of cases, and even if we get the cases down to a low level, how do we stop a second wave? I'm afraid I think we're stuck with this. And I'm afraid that means that in terms of football and indeed in terms of all competitive sport, yeah. we're, we're looking at, um, I would say, just wait until it is safe to resume, take stock and finish things off. Because yeah. to me, it was blatantly obvious as long ago as November time Liverpool were by far and away the best team yeah. in the Premier League. I could tell at Isthmian League level, okay, Worthing had that wobble in the month or so leading up to it not being safe to go out and everything else and, and the lockdown. But it did seem, well, let's play, football's all about opinions. Let's play it out, make sure they do win the league, so to speak. Yeah. That, that's, that's where we are with things. But we're seeing, I'm afraid, I, I know there's a really good podcast I've done with uh, Jeremy Jacobs, the ex-Capital Gold, BBC London, BBC Kent football reporter and commentator. Please listen to it if you haven't already. We discuss non-league football in a lot of depth in both an English and a Welsh context. We've seen the loss. A, a club has gone to the wall, a very old club after over 120 years, 
Sonny Rill have gone to the wall. Were they in the Welsh Premier? Um, they, well, look, cards on the table, I'm not quite sure, but they used to be. And yeah. I was at um, the National Stadium in Cardiff in 1993 for the Welsh Cup final, where Cardiff City beat Rill 5 0. And in those days, it was Barrytown and Rill. They were numbers one and two in, in the old, in the old uh, League of Wales in the early years after the League I'll of Wales. Of course, you did. They're in the JD Cymru North. So that must be the one below. That's se- second tier down then, yeah. I, I didn't yeah. think they were in the JD Cymru Premium, which is why I hesitated there. But they're a very old club and they've got a small but loyal following. I remember the, the chant that day. I remember that game at the old National Stadium. The Cardiff City fans were chanting at the, the real goalkeeper. There's only one Rod Stewart because he did look like Rod Stewart, their goalkeeper. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, that, that's a very, very old club that's been there far longer than even our great-grandparents and anything else gone to the wall. How many clubs are going to be in the same position? Yes. Yeah. I think we're going to see a lot because especially at non-league level, they rely on uh, money. They rely on money. Uh, you know, the bars, the match today, the volunteers, they rely on it to keep the club afloat. This won't be the first and this won't be the last, sadly, mate. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was better to be safe. But as the precedent's already started, uh, we might have different views on this. I think as there's already been leagues and seasons nulled and voided, I think it's just they should just void everything now. Then players can do whatever they want. And then we'll just start again from whenever it's safe, whether it's a version that starts in January and we ends up finishing in time for the World Cup in November next year, um, that the year after, you know, who knows, maybe we'll run two seasons like that, but, you know, we're going to have to have a little little think about this and I, I personally think as they've started the precedent, they've got to have to set the precedent now and all leagues are going to have to be non-employed. Um, well, well my, my own view is that, as I say, just wait until yeah. it's safe to resume normal life yeah. and take, take stock of the situation. Cause but the thing is, just, sadly, the FA have already made that decision, mate, in some leagues. I know. So you can't, I mean, they could reverse it, but then they're not going to want it. They're going to want to save face. So the only option is now, in my opinion, is to avoid everything. If the FA Council hadn't made that decision last week to officially sign off for avoiding step three and below, then maybe we could have done that. But unfortunately, the FA drew their cards last week and they did that. And I think they've completely spoiled um, and they've stepped too far in advance. They did. And I, what particularly irks with me, as I've already said, is that they did it to the lower end of the pyramid before they went higher up. And I, I think that was because they knew there would be less likely to be legal action. But we're already seeing in Scotland, aren't we? how the announcement was made there and all of a sudden there's legal action being threatened in Scotland. So it's, it's a very, very messy situation, but I think the best thing you could have done is taken stock. And it does seem, you heard what uh, Professor Chris Whitty said at the 5 p.m. government briefing earlier today, where he said, so didn't, didn't mention the lockdown. He just said social distancing is very likely to be here to stay till the end of the year. Um, and with that in mind, how on earth can you have a football or a rugby match or anything else like that for that matter? And for that matter as well, on a final note, I know this is a bit of a grim note to end on, and hopefully you can cheer us up by telling a joke or moving on to something just before we finish. But if you're in a new relationship or anything like that, how do you even go about meeting a new partner or anything like that at the moment? Because, well, I, I know an example, Peter, one of our regular listeners uh, in the Republic of Ireland, he's 60 years of age and he's got an 18-year-old son. And, you know, 18-year-olds, they're all naive at that age. Everyone thinks they know everything, and, of course, you don't. He got this girlfriend, and um, it was was clear that Ireland was going to go into lockdown, same as this country. And he said, uh, and the son said, I'm going to move in with her. I'm going to move in with her. They're both 18 years of age. They've been seeing each other a matter of weeks. And Peter said, look, I'm a 60-year-old man. 
I've got an underlying health condition. You move in with her. I'm not letting you back in until this lockdown is over. It is as simple as that. Uh, and Peter lives in a semi-rural area in the Republic of Ireland in Southwest Ireland. He, he leaves once a day to walk his dog in the local woods. But apart from that, he's staying at home. The son moved in with the girlfriend. Guess what happened after about 10 days? They split up. But yeah, they realized they couldn't stand each other. Certainly not ready to live together at that age. So the son has now, luckily, he's managed to find a flat which he's moved into. I think a friend of his has moved in with him. But you, you replicate that situation up and down the country. And indeed, other countries. Ireland is a separate country, obviously. It's going on all around the world. It is taking its toll in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. You wanted something funny to end on, and I ended up with it. As you know, the last flight I did with my airline was a flight to the family at the, uh, was it? I can't remember. Yeah, it's just after my birthday, so um, middle of March. And I said to anyone, if anyone wants to get a bit saucy with any of the crew, they want to get with each other, just remember, make sure you've made the right decision because you could have to self-isolate with that person. <laughs> and I think on that bombshell, on that note, it's time to end this podcast. It's been a pleasure as per usual, Marcus, do his coffee break with you. Uh, sorry about the, um, the, the delay to this, but as uh, I didn't want to bring it up, but as my mother-in-law passed a couple of weeks ago. So rest in peace, Babs. I, I uh, met her at your time. wedding and she was a lovely, lovely lady. lady. Lovely, lovely lady. And I'm very proud of my wife how she's handled it. But rest in peace. I hope you're listening to this now mm. from up there. And we'll be back in a few weeks' time to chew the fat on anything else. And I'm sure there'll be plenty more to talk about in the next few weeks. Um, but all I want to say to you guys is please stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives because if you don't, then this thing is going to go on a lot bloody longer than it is now. But Marcus, Very well it's always a pleasure. as always, James. And as James says, do please stay at home, follow the guidelines, follow the rules. You're allowed to go out for food, essential work and exercise once a day with social distances. Please follow the rules. There is no end in sight at the moment, but we've all got to keep ourselves, our families, our loved ones safe. So James and I, thank you as always, James. It's been a pleasure. We'll see you in a few weeks' time.